Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, November 26th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So how was your Thanksgiving? It was great. I love the celebration of all things uh, dinosaur relatives. <laughs> did you eat some dinosaur? I did eat some dinosaur. We ate dinosaur two ways. So I, ah. I feel I feel like a proper predator of that time period. So, you know, I always Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday uh, and I always I always put on a big meal and, and invite anyone who doesn't have a place to go in San Francisco. So if that's you next year, uh, you know, let me know. But one of the things that I don't like is the carcass at the end of the meal. And, um, you know, I always have someone else sort of carve as much of it as, I, as they can. And then it needs to leave my house before the next morning. And this time I felt a little bad thinking, like, am I actually taking these dinosaur bones and throwing them in the compost and like, you know, preventing future generations from being able to study them? <laughs> you're not leaving a fossil record of your Thanksgiving meal. Is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. So, listeners, if you haven't listened to our our uh, last episode, we talked to Ken Lacavara, who's a paleontologist, and told us that uh, birds are still living dinosaurs. Uh, so, of course, if you had turkey for Thanksgiving, that's what we're talking about. Um, and this week, we wanted to give you some new insights, some of the uh, more, more recent research or, or latest insights about dinosaurs from another paleontologist. His name is Steve Brusatti. And he is now at the University of Edinburgh, and he's made a ton of discoveries, including being involved in uh, the discovery of 50 new species. And one of the things that he's really passionate about is the fact that paleontology seems to be in a particularly great, seems to be experiencing a boom time. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk to Steve about that. So I, yes, I kind of thought that we were sort of done that like paleontology was largely settled you're you're saying there's so much more to explore yeah well that's i'm not just saying that steve is saying that and and not only that but that you know that the tools that we've we've sort of developed over the last decade or so have really opened up the field uh so it's it's exciting so let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with steve brusatti 
In 2013, Amy Errett founded Madison Reed, and she named it after her daughter. Now the company is on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. For decades, women have had two options. You could color your hair at home in an outdated fashion, or you could spend the time and money to go to a salon. So Amy created Madison Reed because she believes women deserve better than just the status quo. Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color with the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color in an ammonia-free formula with ingredients that you can feel great about. You'll look like you just came back from the salon, but the reality is that you and I will know that you had more me time to do the things that you really wanted to do. Experience beautiful, multidimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and loved Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Madison Reed would like to honor Inquiring Minds listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code MINDS. That's code M-I-N-D-S. Steve Brusati, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me and uh, giving me a chance to do what I love best, talking about dinosaurs. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so our listeners will have just uh, heard an interview with Ken Lacovara about uh, sort of the, the Dreadnoughtus in particular, which is the dinosaur that, that he discovered. Um, but and we talked a little bit about the, the fall of the dinosaurs, which I know is a big topic of your book. But I, I want to actually start uh, logically with the rise of the dinosaurs. <laughs> so how is it that these uh, species came to dominate the world and the planet? Well, I'm very happy to talk about the rise and the fall. That's the reason why I you know, gave the book the title uh, that I did, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. So happy to cover both. But I, I think you know, talking about the rise is really fun because we always do talk about the fall. And the fall is an amazing story when this asteroid fell out of the sky and wiped out the dinosaurs. But the rise of dinosaurs, I think, is at least as interesting. And maybe it's even more intriguing because dinosaurs didn't just rise up one day and spread around the world, but it took them quite a lot of time. And we now know that the rise of dinosaurs was gradual. We now know that dinosaurs started out as quite humble creatures that were trying to survive after another big extinction. And for many, many millions of years, we're living in the shadows of other animals, which were more dominant. And so we've learned this all really over the last decade or so. And, and the gist of the story is this. About 252 million years ago, at the end of the Permian period, this is a time interval, uh, you know, geologists give names to different intervals of time. So the end of the Permian period, you had the, the supercontinent of Pangaea at that time. Very different world from today. Lots of animals living on that world, ancient amphibians, ancient relatives of mammals, different kinds of reptiles. But then that world was thrown into chaos because volcanoes started to erupt in what is now Siberia. But these were not normal volcanoes. This wasn't Pinatubo or Mount St. Helens blowing its top one day and shooting out a bunch of ash. But these were volcanoes that were basically super volcanoes. This was a time when enormous fissures in the earth opened up and started spewing out tsunamis of lava. And that lasted for five 
million years. And that led to the biggest extinction that has ever happened in the entire history of the Earth, the closest that life has ever come to completely dying out, up to 95% of all species went extinct. But those volcanoes stopped erupting eventually. The world started to heal ecosystems recovered, and those few plucky survivors now had a whole new world to themselves. And among those survivors were some small little reptiles that right afterwards, as the Permian period gave way to the Triassic period, the next interval of geological time, these reptiles, just about the size of a house cat, they started walking around on all four legs. They put their legs and their arms underneath their body so they could stand up really straight and tall and they could run really fast. These reptiles started to colonize that world. And these reptiles were the ancestors of the dinosaurs. And there were not very many of them. Maybe 5% of all the animals living on land at that time. And they weren't big. Again, just the size of a house cat. They didn't look anything like a T-Rex or anything like a Brontosaurus, but they were fast, they were smart, they could grow fast. And so they gradually started to spread around the world. But it took another 20, 30 million years for these animals, maybe even more, to become the dominant dinosaurs that we all know and love. Because early on in their history, in the Triassic period, these small, almost anonymous little cat-sized dinosaurs and dinosaur ancestors were overshadowed by some of the other animals that had survived that extinction and were diversifying. And in particular, the crocodiles of that time were very different than the crocodiles of today. There were many different types. There were plant-eating ones and ones with armor and ones with horns and ones with beaks and ones with sails on their backs and ones that even walked around on only their hind legs. And it was the crocs and their close relatives that ruled the Triassic world. And it was only another extinction 200 million years ago. Now the Triassic period is ending, giving way to the Jurassic period. The supercontinent is starting to break apart. And as the supercontinent breaks apart, you have more supervolcanoes erupting through the cracks. Those volcanoes caused another extinction, a runaway global warming event that killed off most of those crocs. But the dinosaurs made it through. And it was only after that extinction, a good 50 million years after those first little cat-sized dinosaur ancestors uh, started evolving, that finally now dinosaurs spread around the world, grew to huge sizes, and became the very dominant, successful animals that we all know and love. So how, so what was it that saved the cat-like dinosaurs from extinction? Is it just their size, or was there something else about them that allowed them to survive that second extinction period? Well, it's really hard to know. And this is one of those mysteries that's still out there. And it's one of those mysteries that uh, I really do think is going to be solved by somebody in the new generation of paleontologists. You know, there's so many young paleontologists around the world now, which is great. And I think somebody is going to figure this out. But I don't know the answer. There are still plenty of things about dinosaurs that we just don't know. Uh, what we do know is that those first cat-sized dinosaurs, you know, they did get a little bit bigger. They did diversify a little bit. They did spread to certain parts of the world. So by the end of the Triassic period, you had some dinosaurs that were up to the size of 
about giraffes, maybe even a little bit bigger. You had plant eaters, you had meat eaters, you had some dinosaurs that walked on all fours, you had other dinosaurs that only walked on their hind legs. And they lived in different parts of the world, not all over the world, but they had colonized a large part of the world. They were still, though, overshadowed by the crocs and the, the close relatives of the crocs. But for whatever reason, that second extinction, as the supercontinent broke apart and these volcanoes spewed out carbon dioxide and methane and other noxious gases that poisoned the atmosphere and led to this runaway global warming event, for whatever reason, those volcanoes really hit the crocs hard. The crocs couldn't cope with those, and only a few crocs survived, and those are the ancestors of today's crocodiles and alligators. But the dinosaurs really just sailed right on through. They kept on trucking somehow for some reason. We don't know exactly why. Maybe they grew faster than the crocs. Maybe their metabolism was higher. Maybe they had feathers by that point already, and the feathers helped insulate them against the cold spells when the volcanoes would erupt before the global warming would kick in. It's hard to know for sure. And I'm really, as you can tell, just kind of throwing out ideas because we don't know. And that is a little bit unfulfilling, but I think that's actually kind of neat because that means there are still riddles out there. We don't know everything about dinosaurs. In fact, we only know a tiny little bit about the age of dinosaurs because it happened so long ago and fossils are our only clues. And that means that for all the younger crowd out there, the young kids and teenagers that are interested in paleontology, there are still so many things left to find out. Yeah, so that uh, reminds me of one of our favorite guests is Stuart Firestein, who, who you know, talks about how ignorance is, is really at the heart <laughs> of time, right? <laughs> it's like- absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's realizing what we don't know and trying to find ways to understand those things, to answer those questions, trying to find ways to discover the clues that we need to turn an unknown into a known. And that's what makes science really fun. And that's what makes science a little bit like detective work. And I think that's the really intoxicating part of science. It's not memorizing facts, you know, like so many of us do when we're taught science in school. It is quite the opposite of that. It's embracing the unknown. It's going and seeking out our own facts. And I think paleontology, maybe even more than most other sciences, really shows that because so much depends on what fossils we have. And we're always finding new fossils. And each new fossil is a clue. And each new fossil can tell us some new story that we didn't know before. And so all of us are always on the lookout for new fossils. Well, you might you might see a bump in uh, people taking paleontology classes now that we're in actually in registration phase for a lot of universities. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. And that would be a wonderful thing. And, you know, the thing to know about that, it, you know, for, for all the, the youngsters out there, this really is a golden age. You know, we are in the middle of this incredible time. People are finding more dinosaurs than ever before. Somebody somewhere around the world is finding a new species of dinosaur on average once a week. These days, that's 50 some new species every single year. And that pace has been going on for about a decade. So it shows no signs of stopping. And that really does mean that if 
you are one of those people that's enthused about science, enthused about paleontology, register for that course. See what it's all about, because this is not a dead field. We study things that have been dead for a long time, but this is not a dead field. So when we talked to Ken LaCavara, he, t- he, he told us that there was a little shrew-like uh, ancestor of, the, of mammals that survived the asteroid that, that took out the dinosaurs. Was there a similar animal that survived the, the other two extinctions that you're talking about here that um, alongside the cat-like dinosaur? Or is that something that happened? Uh, or or, or did, that, did that sort of species only come about during the Jurassic Age? Extinctions are tragic things. And when you have a mass extinction, whether it's the one at the end of the Cretaceous that killed the dinosaurs when the asteroid hit, or whether it's these two we've been talking about, the one at the end of the Permian, the one at the end of the Triassic that were caused by these two different bouts of supervolcanoes. When these things happen, a whole lot of species die out all over the world. They die out very suddenly. And life is reset. A lot of creatures that were dominant suddenly disappear. And that is a sad thing in a sense. But it's also nature. It's also the reality of the world. And the way extinctions work is that they clear space for new plants, new animals, new ecosystems. And that can be a positive thing. And so many of the animals that are so familiar to us today, mammals, crocodiles, birds, turtles, lizards, frogs, all these types of animals, they wouldn't really be here except that they got their opportunity after the other dominant creatures of the day went extinct. And when you get a big extinction like this, one of the general rules, or at least one of the things that we see often with these extinctions, is that in order to survive, you have to be lucky, probably, because we're talking about times of chaos where the normal rules of evolution break down. But it does seem like species that are smaller, species that are adaptable, species that can hide, species that can eat lots of different food. It seems like those types of animals are the ones that at least have a better chance of surviving. So at the end of the Cretaceous, when all these dinosaurs were dying, you had a few mammals and a few birds make it through. And these were the small, adaptable survivors. And it was the same way back at the start of the age of dinosaurs. These small little reptiles that gave rise to the dinosaur dynasty, they were the small, plucky survivors of the day. They were not T-Rexes yet. They were not the size of buses or the size of airplanes yet. They were small. They were adaptable. They could survive in the shadows. And they had what it took to endure the catastrophe. So I think that's a lesson in there, and I think that helps us understand what does live and what does die when you do have sudden extinction events. And this is very relevant to today's world because our world is changing very fast. We have to do something about that, and I think the first thing we have to do is understand from the fossil record, from the clues we have, from the history of the earth, from the actual animals and ecosystems that went through changes in the past. We have to look to these records to understand maybe what we should expect in the future. And one of these things that we should probably expect is some of the bigger, more big, bold, boisterous, dominant animals. Those things are often susceptible to extinction. And a lot of times it's the small, anonymous little ones that make it through. 
Well, that's a great analogy for the human social strata. <laughs> um, but but let's let's stick with the dinosaurs uh, just for the moment. Uh, so tell us a little bit about how they did rise to dominance. Uh, what was it about you know the the conditions of the environment or their adaptability? You know why how how did they become so dominant? There were I think two keys to it. You know, first of all, they did take advantage of this extinction that killed off all of these crocs that were their early competitors. If that extinction never happened, then I don't know if the dinosaurs ever would have rose up. It might have actually been the crocs that diversified even more and grew to even bigger sizes and spread all around the world and became the dominant animals of the time. So that's the first part of it. But the second thing is it wasn't just the dinosaurs were lucky. That was a part of it. But dinosaurs also had a lot going for them. These were incredible feats of evolution. We're so often told, especially in the older books that I read as a student, uh, the books that we had in school when I was young, that dinosaurs were failures, that dinosaurs were these big, uh, dim-witted, slow-moving, drab-colored idiots, basically, these these mistakes of prehistory that were just waiting around to go extinct. But that's not the case at all. Dinosaurs were incredibly successful. Dinosaurs formed an empire. Dinosaurs lived for over 150 million years. And they had many traits and characteristics that helped them become so dominant. They could grow fast. They by and large, had pretty big brains, at least compared to the other animals they were living alongside. They had keen senses. They had really sophisticated ways of moving and of eating. And they had the capacity to grow to a whole bunch of different sizes. Some of them were the biggest animals that have ever lived on land. Some of these long-necked sauropod dinosaurs that were the size of Boeing 737 aircrafts. But at the other side of the spectrum, you had little pigeon-sized dinosaurs. So dinosaurs filled all of that size range. And you had dinosaurs that ate meat and dinosaurs that ate plants. You had dinosaurs that could run fast, dinosaurs that could burrow, dinosaurs that could climb trees, dinosaurs that could glide. Later on, you had dinosaurs that could fly. You had dinosaurs with horns and spikes and frills and domed heads and all sorts of different features. So when you put that all together, what you see really is that dinosaurs Dinosaurs had great diversity, and I think it was that diversity and the capability of evolving that diversity that was the big key to their success. So there's also one particular finding, at least, um, probably many more, that you talk about in your book that you personally are responsible for and have contributed to, which is sort of, you know, how the Tyrannosaurus rex became particularly dominant as a dinosaur. So tell us a little bit about your work uh, on T-Rex. I love T-Rex. I know it's very cliched, and I know that it is probably uh, a really boring thing to say, but it is my favorite dinosaur, (laughs) and I think everybody says that, but there's a reason, because T-Rex was the ultimate killing machine. This was the biggest, baddest pure predator that we know of that has ever lived on land in the entire four and a half billion year history of the earth. This was an animal the size of a double-decker bus. It weighed seven or eight tons. It had a head the size of a bathtub. It had more than 50 railroad spike teeth that it used to bite through the bones of its prey. This was a feat 
of evolution. And you can't help but just be awed by a dinosaur like T-Rex. I think T-Rex is more fantastic than any dragons or sea monsters or unicorns or leprechauns or whatever creatures humans have come up with in in myths or in legends. But T-Rex was real. But T-Rex itself also had humble origins. This is a theme, a recurring theme that we're starting to see. The Tyrannosaurs, the group to which T-Rex belongs, they did not begin as these giant bone-crushing brutes. They began about 100 million years before T-Rex lived, and they began as these pretty small, pretty humble, human-sized dinosaurs that were living in the shadows of other giant predators. These were animals that would have weighed about as much as we weighed. They had long, skinny legs. They had bigger arms than the pathetically puny arms of T-Rex. They had smaller heads. They had lots of sharp little teeth. They had these weird mohawk-like crests of bone sticking out of their head, which they probably used to display, so to uh, intimidate rivals, to attract mates, that sort of thing. And they were living alongside, probably in fear of, the allosaurs and the carcardinosaurs and the spinosaurs and the ceratosaurs and some of these other groups of giant predators of that time. And that's how tyrannosaurs would remain for a good 80 million years or so. They were a second or third tier predator in the food chain, and they were good at that. They spread all around the world, or at least to much of the world, and they were really good in that role. But then later on, of course, they became huge. They became biblically colossal in size, and they rose to the top of the food chain, and they became dominant. And that only happened right at the end of the age of dinosaurs, the final 20 million years or so before the asteroid hit. And it looks like what happened was that tyrannosaurs, when they were still small and still trying to survive in the shadows— They started to evolve big brains and keen senses. And then later on, when the incumbent giant predators went extinct for whatever reason, we don't quite know why, but the allosaurs and carcardinosaurs and a lot of these animals went extinct, tyrannosaurs were there to seize the top predator role. They were opportunistic, and they were able to move into that role because they had brains and They were able to evolve brawn. So they had the big brains and the keen senses, but they also had sharp teeth and sharp claws and the ability to get really big. And so when you put all that together, that's what made them the ultimate predator. It wasn't just that they were huge. It wasn't just that they could crush the bones of their prey, but it was also because they were smart. They could see well, they could hear well, they could smell well. And you put that together and you have... uh, a predator that seems like it's the creation of some sort of mad Hollywood screenwriter, but it was a very real animal. So um, one thing that Ken told us that Hollywood screenwriters got wrong is uh, what to do if you're faced with a T-Rex. So, you know, <laughs> Hollywood, you should just stand still. But he pointed out that, well, they could smell you and they could see you. So that's not going to work. His suggestion was run so that you're directly behind them because they have a hard time turning. What, what, what advice would you give? I would say, first of all, Ken is 
correct there. And, uh, you know, Mr. Spielberg uh, was not so correct, but that's fine. It's a movie. I'm not going to criticize Jurassic Park. You know, it's not a documentary. It's good entertainment. I love it. And so many paleontologists, by the way, are big Jurassic Park fans. But Ken's absolutely right. If you stood still, a T-Rex could still see you. T-Rex had binocular vision like we do. It had depth perception. But it could also smell you. It had huge olfactory bulbs in its brain that controlled the sense of smell. So it had a better sense of smell probably than we do. And it had a much better sense of hearing than we do. We can tell that from cat scanning the skulls of T-Rex. And we can actually see the cavity that housed the ear. And we can see the size and shape of the cochlea. And we know from modern animals that the length of the cochlea correlates with how uh, well something can hear. And T-Rex had a really long cochlea, so it could hear really well. So you put all that together, and it was a smart animal with keen senses. It would be able to see you if you were there. Now, whether you could escape by kind of running behind it or something, I don't know. I think you would have been pretty much out of luck if the T-Rex was there. But the one thing that T-Rex could not do well was run. And that's another thing that's not quite accurate in Jurassic Park. There's that scene where the T-Rex is chasing down the Jeep and the Jeep is starting to move at you know almost highway speeds and the T-Rex is chasing it down. But we now know through the work of some really clever paleontologists using computer modeling, using basically animation software to test how T-Rex could could move, that it could not run fast. So it could, because it was so big and its legs were still long, it could probably still outrun a human, but it couldn't outrun a Jeep. So probably the best way to survive would be to get into some kind of vehicle and speed away. And if you didn't, if you don't have a vehicle, uh, then you probably wouldn't have many options left. So I'm really curious, uh, as someone with a background in neuroscience, sort of how you CAT scan a T-Rex skull, and, and you've been involved in some of these studies. So, so tell us a little bit more detail about sort of how that kind of technology helps. Technology like CAT scanning has spread through the field of paleontology, uh, and paleontology has become a very techy science. I think this is true of most sciences, really. You know, technology is advancing so quickly, and there are lots of really clever people who take inspiration from other sciences and bring them into paleontology. Uh, so people started CAT scanning fossils a few decades ago, back when CAT scanners were um, these really exotic machines that would really only be uh, in hospitals or maybe uh, in, in some big industrial companies that needed to um, you know, scan jet engines or that sort of thing to make sure there were no impurities. Nowadays, though, CAT scanners have become really common, and so many paleontology laboratories have their own CAT scanners. And we have one at the University of Edinburgh where I uh, work. I didn't build it. I don't run it. It's my my uh, colleague, my friend Ian Butler, who actually built this built this machine from scratch. But this is true of lots of labs. And so we routinely CAT scan fossils. And what the CAT scans do is basically analogous to what they do in medicine. So if something is wrong with us, if we feel a pain inside of our bodies, let's say, and we go to the doctor, the doctor doesn't really know what's going on. The doctor 
you know, she'll probably order a CAT scan because the CAT scan can see inside of you through x-rays. That means the doctor doesn't have to cut into you. So it's a way to image inside of your body to see what's going on. And it's the same with fossils. If we want to see what's inside of the bones, we could cut the bones open, and people used to do that, but you have to destroy the bones if you do that. So this is particularly useful for skulls because if you CAT scan a skull, you can see inside of that skull, you can see the brain cavity, you can see the ear cavity, the sinuses, the cavities where the nerves and vessels were, were running through. And then you can build digital models of those things from the x-rays of the CAT scanner, and you can actually see on your computer screen what a T-Rex brain would have looked like. And you can measure its size, and you can compare it to the body size of T-Rex, and then compare that to other animals and get a sense for how intelligent it is, and, and so on. And so that has really revolutionized things. And CAT scanners have helped us understand in much more detail the anatomy of dinosaurs and the behavior of dinosaurs. So you, you mentioned that um, T-Rex is, is, was probably about as intelligent as a modern-day chimpanzee, which uh, kind of made me almost fall off my chair. Because <laughs> chimpanzees are pretty smart. Uh, you know, they can learn a lot of things that, that, that we can do and we can teach them. Was there any, and I asked Ken the same question, so forgive me, uh, uh, was, is there any evidence of like a kind of culture among dinosaurs or, or like a passing down of information or any kind of, I mean, I know from the fossil record, it's going to be really hard to, to put that together, but uh, you know, I, I can't help asking the question. Yes. So the first thing I'll say is when I made that comparison in the book with T-Rex and chips, I was way too overambitious there. So that's the, the one factoid in the book I would like to take back. And I've learned a lot more about dinosaur brains since then. I have a lot of projects in my lab now where we're studying brain evolution. So I feel silly for having written that. Now, the now, that T-Rex was smart, much smarter than people thought. It probably just wasn't up to chimp level because, as you say, chimps are really smart. Uh, there were some other dinosaurs, like the raptor dinosaurs, that very well could have been up to chimp level or somewhere in that vicinity. But I, we can be a little, I think, less dramatic with T-Rex and say that it was probably within the mammal zone of intelligence or at least was very intelligent animal for its time, uh, even if it wasn't quite as smart as, as, as a chimp. Now, what that means is T-Rex would have been an intelligent animal. We know that tyrannosaurs lived with each other in social groups, so it would have been a social animal. It would have had really keen senses. It would have probably interacted with this world in a very advanced and sophisticated way. But whether it had any kind of culture or whether it, for instance, used tools, uh, that sort of thing, we don't know. I mean, a culture, probably not. We don't really have any evidence for that. But tool usage is something that I think is really interesting. And maybe T-Rex wasn't so much of a tool user. It would probably be hard to make uh, stone tools with its tiny little hands, tiny little arms. But I do think that some dinosaurs might have used tools. Why not? You know, so many modern birds use tools. So many modern birds do really, really advanced things. And birds evolved from dinosaurs. So many dinosaurs were very bird-like. They were covered in feathers. Some of them even had wings. We know that some of the raptor dinosaurs had brains that were basically identical to the brains of primitive birds. So why not? I, I think it's very possible that somebody someday, maybe even someday soon, might find some kind of evidence 
evidence for a velociraptor or another small brainy bird-like dinosaur using tools in the way that birds do. And I think that would be an incredible discovery. So I'm predicting it here. I'm calling it. Maybe I'll be dead wrong there. But I think, I think this is something that somebody will find someday. So I want to let our listeners know that Steve's book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaur, A New History of a Lost World, is available at booksellers everywhere. And before I let you go, I was really intrigued by your um, theory that even if the asteroid hadn't hit and there hadn't been that mass extinction, that the dinosaurs were doomed anyway. So tell us about that. Yeah, I wouldn't say they were doomed. I would say that... um, the dinosaurs were actually doing quite well. And when the asteroid came down, there were still lots of species of dinosaur living all over the world. There were meat eaters, there were plant eaters, there were the big long neck ones, there were tyrannosaurs. So T-Rex itself was actually there when the asteroid hit, as was triceratops and duck-billed dinosaurs and armored dinosaurs. So they, they were still doing well. They were still dominant. They were still thriving. What it seems like, though, is during the few million years before the asteroid hit, you did have a small decline in the diversity of some of the big plant-eating dinosaurs at the base of the food chain. So what that meant was that the dinosaur ecosystems might have been especially vulnerable when the asteroid hit. So the asteroid might have hit at a really bad time. It might have hit in a narrow window of time when these dominant animals, which were still around and still living all over the world, were just weaker than they would normally be because their food chains had a less secure base. So if you think of a food chain as a house of cards and you think of the big plant eaters at the base of the food chain as holding up that food chain, if you take out some of those species, it's just going to be easier to knock over that house of cards. So that's what I think might have happened with the asteroid. But I, but I think that if the asteroid didn't hit, that dinosaurs probably would have recovered that diversity of plant eaters, and they probably would have continued. And that means not necessarily that T-Rex would still be here because species change all the time. But what I think it would mean is that dinosaurs would still be the dominant animals in our world today, and mammals would still be living in the shadows. And that means that we probably would not be having this conversation. And this is one of those great what-ifs of history. You, know, you ask, what if the Archduke was never shot? What if 9-11 never happened? You know, these sorts of questions. And I think when it comes to prehistory, that big what-if is, what if that asteroid was a near miss? I think the entire history of the Earth would have turned out very, very differently. And do you think that there is that we're currently as a human species in also a kind of uniquely vulnerable position? Or do you think that, you know, if there is another major disaster happening to our world, we're actually pretty well equipped now to handle it? I think if an asteroid was barreling down on us, we would find a way to stop it. You know, we have ingenuity as a species. And when there's an immediate threat confronting us, we seem to do quite well. But our problem is that we are causing our own slow motion disaster as a species. And whether we are capable of actually doing anything to address and turn back climate change and environmental change. I don't know. We should be. We should be. But it comes down to politics and it comes down to uh, how societies make decisions. Uh, And so that does frighten me, quite frankly, because our world is changing very fast and we are the agents of our own doom. Now, the earth will be okay. The earth has survived all kinds of things. But 
will we be okay? Because we have evolved as a species to live on a very particular type of planet with a very particular type of climate and very particular types of, you know, sea levels and so on. So that's my biggest concern. And I think anybody like me who studies the fossil record, studies prehistory, the thing that jumps out right away that we all feel is just that the earth is really old and the earth is always changing and species are always coming and going. And that means that we should not be too comfortable. You know, we have to lose a little bit of that hubris because yes, we are dominant now. Yes, we live all over the earth now, but there were dominant species before us. And the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs were around for over 150 million years. They formed an empire. They evolved into some of the most incredible animals that have ever lived. But Yet, when that asteroid came down and changed the climate and changed the environment so quickly, the dinosaurs couldn't cope and they went extinct. Now, humans, we've been around for only 200,000 years. So if something like this could happen to the dinosaurs, could it also happen to us? And I think, yes, it could happen to us if we are not careful. But there is still time to change. That time might be running out, but there is still time. So I really hope that by learning about dinosaurs, this gives people some sort of perspective there, perspective about how old our Earth is and how our Earth is always changing and how species can be quite fragile. Steve Rosati, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much. My pleasure. So one of the things that surprised me in the interview was when Steve said that T-Rex wasn't a very good runner. We were talking about, you know, how do you escape a T-Rex? And and that was directly uh, opposite of what Ken had said, that in fact, you know, a T-Rex could outrun the fastest human. Um, it turns out Steve was talking about outrunning a Jeep. <laughs> so yes, he agreed that T-Rex uh, could outrun a human, but that if you got into a Jeep, it wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, go as fast as 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 a, as quickly as a jeep could drive i mean um, if so, you're as big as a t-rex with that long of a gate i don't think it takes much to outrun a human at that point <laughs> but um i get his point about you know taking a shot at, at uh, spielberg's portrayal and and basically a- everyone's hollywood portrayal of t-rex's you know running as fast as they can chasing down cars and, and whatnot that se- probably seems unrealistic I want to pick up the the thread, though, like putting that aside, that we still have a lot to learn about um, dinosaurs behavior. And so this picture of what they are is evolving. Uh, Steve left a lot of like little nuggets on the uh, on his trail about uh, about all these areas that are left to explore and this this sort of youthful movement that there's so many emerging paleontologists on the scene. Um, this is one of those things where it was like, as with any science, there's always more to discover. There's more questions to unearth. Uh, what, what are your expectations like around this period? Because dinosaurs are in almost every natural history museum. Uh, are we going to reshape that landscape or are we just making small, um, uh, gains at the edges? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that worries me a little bit is where is the funding going to come from? I mean, we have some major problems that we're we're facing down as a society. And I think a lot of people are really interested in how science can help humanity. And sometimes the link between understanding uh, species that lived you know, many, many millions of years ago and what we're facing today is hard. And so I appreciate 
you know, Steve and Ken's efforts to show how, you know, the plight of the dinosaurs and the sort of history of the dinosaurs can give us clues as to potentially, you know, how we can adapt to our own environment and what we need to worry about in terms of the, the, um, the, the survival of our species. But, you know, as they mentioned, like humans are just a blip uh, in time compared to the kinds of uh, things that they are studying. So I think that there has to, I see two ways in which paleontology can really continue to be sort of well-funded and relevant and exciting. Um, And this goes, you know, beyond just the knowledge for knowledge sake. I mean, of course, I I think that's important. But in terms of, you know, if you're you're trying to convince a, a policymaker that they should spend money on, you know, studying dinosaurs rather than, you know, studying human aging, for example, or neurodegenerative diseases. Um, you know, I think I think one thing is that, you know, by by using this as a using this topic as a way of exciting young scientists who then might develop new tools that can be used in other approaches. I think that that's sort of one area. And I think that, you know, by, you know, as he describes using CAT scans to look at the skulls, maybe there's, there are ways in which we can develop tools specifically for paleontology that we can then bring back to other sciences. So the interdisciplinary nature, I think is, is, is one. Um, and the other is sort of like how, you know, sort of the, the, the way that science works itself. So, you know, one thing that, that he, he talked about when he was talking about using CAT scans, there seem to be a lot of assumptions that have to be made. I mean, I'm not uh, by any means close enough to the science of paleontology to evaluate uh, individual studies or individual works. But um, I would think that just by looking at certain aspects of the skull, even using a CAT scan, you still have to assume that the nervous systems were pretty similar uh, to our nervous systems and that the, the marks that they left uh, do have an analogy for, you know, or we can use what we know about ourselves and, and animals currently alive today to go back and and make those kinds of assumptions. And I'm not sure how that works, but I think it's an interesting test case for the scientific method. I mean, I'm assuming they're using, you know, bird vasculature and, and anatomy to help uh, drive this. You know, I'm always stunned by the fact that there was more time between Stegosaurus and T-Rex than between T-Rex and us. Um, which is one of those like really mind bendy facts that I think underscores your point around the timescales. But I am struck by this idea, like when he was talking about the super volcanoes, like bigger than Pinatubo, bigger than anything we've ever experienced, that that underscores that timescale thing. And in light of recent climate reports that have emerged, this context of understanding what happened uh, to the dinosaurs emits like pretty significant uh, changes in their climate while over much longer periods of time is kind of an interesting analogy for our time now. So maybe it doesn't have this strict application for how we adapt to climate change, but the story might carry weight to us too. And and in the end, maybe that's where what we need most right now is a story that will inspire change. Yeah. And I think, you know, I take his point that the diversity of the dinosaur species was one of their you know, biggest assets when it came to adapt- adaptation. So that, you know, the, when there was a time in which there were these major volcanic events, you had a lot of different sizes of dinosaurs. And then, you know, the ones that were smaller were it's easier for them to survive and, and et cetera. And, and so I think that that's something too, that we need to think about is that especially at a time now in our society where, there is a movement in some places to homogenize, sorry, (laughs) there's a movement to homogenize populations 
that maybe, you know, we really need to think about diversity as potentially critical to our survival as a species. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds where you can get an ad-free version of the show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your best pie recipes, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. So if any of you listeners are in San Francisco next week, I will be interviewing Nadine Burke-Harris. She's a pediatrician and the author of a book called The Deepest Well for City Arts and Lectures on December the 3rd. It's at the Norse Theatre as always. So come and join us and we'll have a great conversation about how early trauma can affect a child throughout their lifespan and what we can do to make sure that our kids are resilient. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geek. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.